what journalism has really done for me is it's allowed me to really indulge in that sort of gossipy side of myself, which, you know, academically speaking, is more of a curiosity, right? You're just like so incredibly curious about everything. You just want to know. You just want to get in there. You want to be a little bit what we call in Spanish metiche, kind of like meddlesome, right? And so what journalism has done for me and what it did for me kind of having that mindset when I was in middle school, when I was in high school, is it fed that like natural curiosity that I feel like we all have, where if you find something that is kind of obscure and you get really interested in it, you can just kind of grab on until you know everything to kind of tell the world about it. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Eric Campanzano covers uh, education for the Minneapolis Star Tribune newspaper. Um, he was in the same role at the Oregonian, um, which was based in Portland, Oregon, and he's an alum of the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication, where we first met uh, in the early stages of our launching a digital magazine many, many years ago. <laughs> many years ago. How are you, Eder? Thanks for joining. I'm doing fantastic. First snow of the season's just hitting and, uh, you know, it's getting fun, finally. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, you know, we like to have journalists on, on, on this podcast uh, when, when we can, uh, because, you know, given the work that we do with the Journalistic Learning Initiative, which you're familiar with, uh, we use a journalistic lens to, to help uh, young people um, just really... Uh, approach uh, the way they do English language arts and helping teachers with that as well. And I'm just curious, um, as someone who's now covered um, the education beat for, for two publications, um, what are you, what are you, what are you discerning? I mean, what, what, are there any similarities in covering Oregon education to Minneapolis and, and what's different? Yeah, so I think that is that's sort of the tough thing about moving from one region of the country to another, but staying in the same beat. In that there are a lot of things that do remain the same, but a lot of things that are wildly, wildly different. So I get kind of tripped up. Um, and the I guess to start, the things that are really different is that when I was at the Oregonian, I didn't really think much about the fact that practically everybody in the newsroom sent their child to public schools. And out here, there is, there's an array of options. I mean, this is sort of the epicenter of the charter school movement out here. And so you have a lot of different folks who send their kids, not just to public schools, but to charter schools, privates. Homeschooling has gotten really, really big in the last couple of years. Um, and so I guess that's one of the really big things that kind of threw me for a loop moving from Portland, where, again, the majority of my colleagues sent their children to the local public school. And out here where everybody has a different story based on where their kid goes to school, what helps their kid exceed, um, and kind of what really shapes their, shapes their experience with education. In terms of the things that are the same, I mean, I think that you'll see the thorough line everywhere being that 
everybody just wants their kid to have like a good quality education and everyone just kind of disagrees on what that means, um, you know, what aspects of school are supposed to meet which needs um, and kind of that, that, that entire debate that had kind of really started, I feel really came up during the pandemic, especially like, you know, like so many other things, the pandemic exacerbated just the way that we look at different aspects of life, but kind of carrying on into the present as well. Mm -hmm. There's still a conversation going on about learning loss during the pandemic. And um, there are some that suggest that that's not necessarily the best way to frame it. But from your reporting, you know, is the narrative accurate? I mean, that, you know, we've we've got a generation of kids who, who are, um, who really may continue to be impaired by that, that, that sort of, um, you know, period of time when they weren't experiencing face-to-face instruction. Oh, absolutely. Yo, absolutely. And it's not just academic, as I'm sure you know, you know, it's also social and emotional. It's, you know, psychological. Um, Because one of the common things that you hear specifically from middle school teachers, especially eighth grade teachers right now, is that so many of the students that they see didn't have that same experience of being physically in in a new space, with a bunch of new kids when they hit sixth grade, right? To kind of get that, well, this is how people from a completely different school than the one that I came up through kind of get along and their particular cultural values and needs. Um, and so that sort of melting pot aspect, right? Of the lower grades in middle school and in high school didn't quite get the acclimation to people in their peer age group, but who weren't, who didn't grow up with them, if that makes sense, right? And so a lot of the familiar yeah, there's the difference of having in an elementary school the same teacher all day and then going to, um, you know, a middle school situation where you may have six teachers and, and, and have to manage your time from one class to the other. And if you did, yeah. if you missed that, you know, if you missed like sixth and seventh grade and all of a sudden now you're in eighth grade, I can see how that would be a dramatic change mm-hmm. <laughs> for kids. Yeah, yeah. that And then, you know, academically, I don't think anybody is... I don't think anybody in any district in the country is going to tell you that remote learning was a good substitute for that in-person instruction. And what I heard a lot of in Oregon at the beginning of the pandemic was educators telling me that, you know, there are so many variables that you can just like shut off when you are in control of the classroom that just you you can't control when kids are at home, right? Like siblings um, kind of making racket in the background or a slow internet connection, right? Or you can't, if somebody has their screen off, you can't, read their facial and kind of like body language to see if they're getting it or not. And so educators didn't have the tools that they needed to make sure that kids were on track. And so there's a lot of catch up happening right now in Oregon and in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. What about the toll on the profession itself? I mean, you know, from what I read there, we've, you know, we've lost a lot of teachers who just, you know, it was as hard on them as it, if not more so than it was for their, for their students. And, And they've just sort of said, you know what, I can't, I can't, take this anymore. Is that what you're finding? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even before the pandemic, a lot of what you heard from educators was that they, they kind of felt like they had to be way more than one thing, right? Like they had to play several roles. In a lot of ways, they became kind of social workers, right? Um, It wasn't uncommon to hear stories about teachers who had snacks for students who didn't have enough to eat at home. And so a lot of those issues were compounded and again exacerbated by the pandemic where maybe if you 
heard educators saying that the needs were like 11 out of 10 before they're like 15 out of 10, right? Needs that we need to address. And, you know, in Oregon, right before coronavirus hit, the state legislature did pass a $1 billion per year education, you know, bill to tax corporations to give $500 million to schools annually to really help the most struggling learners. And out here in Minnesota, uh, right before the pandemic, there was this huge survey that came out that showed that students' mental health was on the decline. And so that's only been made worse by the pandemic. So it's just all of the pre-existing needs have just been whoosh, kind of like uh, washed, you know, in, in a huge wave, even more so than they were before. And so to your point, yeah, you've got a lot of educators who are experiencing intense burnout. I think three of the four, or no, two of the three most recent Minnesota Teachers of the Year left the profession because it was too much to take. So that's telling you a little bit about how even the high achievers and the people who have the most to give and who are like the paragons for what the profession can be are just, it's just too much for them right now. I would imagine another deterrent is the debate that's going on between you know, progressives and conservatives about what actually is uh, considered appropriate content in the classroom. So, you know, we know about the anti, um, you know, CRT uh, and uh, don't say gay and all kinds of other legislation that's happening in Florida and Texas and other states. Um, you know, I don't know what the climate is in, in Minnesota, but what's your sense, you know, just looking at education writ large about the what the conversation we're having about um, race and um, and ethnicity and and history um, right. in the classroom. Yeah, no. So that one of the things that the pandemic did when there was a lot of remote learning happening is that you did hear a lot of parents, um, a lot of them conservative, but definitely some who fall on the more left leaning side of things who said that they didn't appreciate what they saw their kids sort of being exposed to in the classroom. And so whether that's conversations about gender, right, or conversations about historical events that they don't quite agree with. I mean, back in Oregon in 2021, I covered two different superintendents who were fired by newly installed school boards who didn't like the equity initiatives that they were, you know, trying to implement. One of them in Newburgh, um, that was really focused on making sure that LGBTQ plus students felt at home in the classroom. Another one in Albany, where um, they wanted to, the superintendent there wanted to uh, make sure that the high school schedules on either side of town were in line with each other so that students from the, you know, kind of more, so that students from the less affluent, right, more Latino high school could take classes and electives at the other one because they simply didn't have the facilities and infrastructure at their high school to do it. And parents raised a stink about it, thinking that their white kind of wealthier students would lose something because all of a sudden these other kids had access to it, right? And so you're seeing a lot of that also sort of play out in Minnesota, which is a little bit different because in Minnesota, every 10 years, the state or every 10 years, the state department of education requires basically not a rewrite, but a revision of the current standards in a given topic, social studies, English, math, you name it. And right now we're in the middle of the review process for social studies standards. And what a lot of progressive educators and a lot of historians want to add to the standards here is a component of 
you know, native history in Minnesota. And there's a bit of a pushback to that, um, as well as, you know, lessons on uh, the contributions of like black Minnesotans to the state's history and other immigrant groups to the state's history. That's getting a lot of pushback from parents who just kind of want what they had when they were in school to be taught to their children. Mm-hmm. I, I got to um, imagine this is uh, reflects on your your own personal history. I mean, you know, you you know, you've you've shared in other discussions that we've had before about your immigration journey and and how it was really a, a teacher that you had who 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 said, you know, hey, you can write, you know, um, and, and and affirmed um, a talent that, you know, may, you may not have recognized yet. And I'm just curious, you know, what it's like to um, to cover education and and in the in the you know and have it be informed by your own personal experience, particularly because um, of your immigration story, which you might want to share a little bit about. Oh, for sure. Um, so one of the sort of common threads during my early education, and frankly, a lot of my cousins, because a lot of my uncles, right, and aunts also immigrated to the sort of same area that my parents did around the same time. I have a pretty substantial family. I think at one point there were something like uh, eight kids with the surname Gampusano in the McMinnville school system where there hadn't been any before, right? Uh, and so, you know, one of the one of the things about being an immigrant in a school system is that, you know, in Spanish, teacher is maestro or maestra. And you sort of had a singular, like, la maestra, who was your key person, like your point person at the school for anything from the free and reduced lunch form to figuring out what the schedule was going to look like to, you know, if there was going to be a boundary discussion, right? If your school was going to shift its boundaries, what that looked like. And knowing that, like coming up through that and covering school systems where there were and are substantive immigrant communities, sourcing with those point people has been essential to getting at, you know, when there's a broader conversation, again, about maybe curriculum, about making sure that people get those free and reduced lunch um, applications in to make sure that they their school gets, you know, funding for the next year, um, finding those people as sort of touch points to get deeper into a story where it's not just, oh, this big expansive change is coming to the school system, but to be able to say, here's how it affects this very narrow slice of the population or this marginalized group that 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 experience has really informed the way that I go about my job because I know where the cracks are right a little bit better than some other people might and I know who's kind of working to find kids who might be able who might be falling through mm-hmm. the you've seen the work that we're doing in in schools uh, in terms of um, using a, introducing a journalistic lens, um, in a more project-based, um, way of, of, uh, approaching English language arts. I'm just curious, you know, given that you're a practicing journalist, you know, what you think, and you also mentored students through various summer programs and things like that. What you think the benefits of, of this sort of journalistic approach are, um, to, um, having kids grow and excel. Right. So, (laughs) You know, to kind of relate it back to my experience and the experiences that I have, um, or not even the experience that I have, but to relate my journalistic experience um, and the way that it benefited me when I was in K-12 and the way that I feel a lot of my reporting peers kind of um, consider it 
is there's this great Latino USA podcast episode. Um, I think it was late last year where uh, the student interns did an episode on the concept of chisme. And chisme is literally just translated in English. It's gossip, right? But in Mexican culture, like the chisme among the family is, oh, hey, who's going out with who, right? Or, oh, hey, you know, who's starting up a business over here? And should we go to that one when we already have an allegiance to this zapateria or this panaderia over here? And what journalism has really done for me is it's allowed me to really indulge in that sort of gossipy side of myself, which, you know, academically speaking, is more of a curiosity, right? You're just like so incredibly curious about everything. You just want to know. You just want to get in there. You want to be a little bit what we call in Spanish metiche, kind of like meddlesome, right? And so what journalism has done for me and what it did for me kind of having that mindset when I was in middle school, when I was in high school, is it fed that like natural curiosity that I feel like we all have, where if you find something that it's kind of obscure and you get really interested in it and you can just kind of grab on until you know everything to kind of tell the world about it. Um, mm -hmm. So in terms of, you know, journalistic learning, I feel like that that's really what's been key is sort of like this profession allows you to really engage with that curious part of you that just wants to know things. Um, and in a lot of cases kind of broadcast it out to the world too. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's still a, a, a significant uh, level of distrust, in, particularly in, in uh, certain states um, around journalism. And I wonder, you know, um, you know, just by the time that we broadcast this or circulate this, the midterms will have passed. But, you know, there was a there was a uh, there was so much um, anxiety ar around uh, the midterm elections, I think. Um, the sense that, uh, you know, it could even turn to violence and everything else. And we saw no, none of that. And also some of the predict predictions about um, certain waves and, and didn't happen. And I wonder if, if, if the, the situation we're in now where media has become more fragmented um, and uh, there is, a, you know, more slices of the pie and more uh, need to, um, you know, get clicks and all that stuff, if if media and particularly mainstream media has started to amplify extremes uh, in the same way that storms and hurricanes are covered and are often given a, you know, some Godzilla name or something like that, you know, in other words, it, I'm just curious looking at not what you're doing in your job, but just the journalism writ large, you know, is, is, is that part of the problem, you know, that the, the pollsters and the, and the horse race and all the different coverage that's so amplify seems to amplify extremes now um doesn't give uh, the public credit for for really having better a better sense of kind of like you know what's really going on i mean you know i don't know is, am i off base with that or what do you think <laughs> you are i mean no i think i think you're right and i think this most recent election cycle i think what it's really proved to us is the how essential it is to have really hyper-local knowledge. Um, because if you look at, you know, who was predicting what was going to happen with the red wave or who was going to win where, um, for the most part, like the pollsters were wrong, right? But if you look at folks like the, a columnist who works at the Nevada Independent who called that, you know, that Senate race perfectly because he's in the community, he knows. Um, 
that's that's kind of what we're missing right now as we're losing local outlets and there's a consolidation nationally um the big flashy things are going to get headlines and they're going to go everywhere but the things that aren't going to travel far and wide that really really help you understand a certain location or you know the way that voters or students educators in a particular district think or feel is having someone who is on their level right who is talking to them every single day to get a sense of what they what they believe right what they're looking for out of maybe education reforms or what they're looking for out of the educational experience um you know i, I again i think to your point that sort of mass con- consolidation of larger media organizations is really depriving us of that hyper localized knowledge that um let's just get to the heart of like what a community actually stands for um the newest host of it's been a minute right that podcast that sam sanders hosted for the longest time had this really great insight about um you know black comedy in chicago where she said you know you can't have specificity without study and that's what we're really missing in a lot of places is you can't get to the specifics of what a place like oregon or minnesota is all about unless you have somebody who's really well studied in those regions I'm curious, are you seeing whether in Oregon or, or in Minnesota uh, types of reforms in K-12 education that, 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 you know, seem to have promise in terms of, you know, we talk about education reform and it always seems to, to um, reduce, get reduced to policies that, that don't necessarily bear fruit. <laughs> so I'm just curious if you've seen anything. Right. Well, in terms of statewide reforms, I think if there's one thing that I have, if there's one conversation that I've been privy to that I feel like has gained some legs, um, it's in the way that particularly elementary instructors, but, you know, even uh, teachers up and down the scale from kindergarten to uh, high school seniors are thinking about reading and implementing the science of reading. Um, in their classrooms, right? So for the longest time, um, educators, literacy instructors have sort of um, been using outdated modes and practices um, and are really hewing toward, there's a program that I'm spacing on what the what the acronym stands for, but the letters program is, you know, has got huge bipartisan support out here. There's a handful of districts in Oregon that are implementing it. And what it does is really tunes an educator into the ways that different students take in reading instruction. And so in the earlier grades, there's a greater emphasis on phonics and phonemic awareness that just wasn't there before. And what they're finding is also that, you know, some students need kind of like sight or like touch cues to kind of sound out words and just give them very different entry points into figuring out how what a what a letter represents when it's placed next to a different letter, right? And to sound things out. Um, And that's probably the most expansive sort of reform that I've seen that's really been sort of a grassroots uh, campaign among parents who have kids with dyslexia, right? Who wanted better supports for their kids. And especially as they hear podcasts, right? From APM Reports, for example, that examines how the program has really helped students in Mississippi and Alabama make enormous gains in their literacy skills. So that's probably the single biggest reform that I've seen that's kind of um, gained ground. But 
Minnesota, like Oregon, is also really, really big on local control for its school districts. And so even if you have like a big top-down sort of push from the Department of Education that says, hey, we feel like there's something here, here's a best practice, let's all go in on this together, um, you know, you'll have the district or two that's like, okay, cool, but we like what we have, right? And so there's always that sort of tension in states like this where, you know, local control is best. Um, and so it's really tough to get statewide or national programs to really penetrate that, that particular shell. Editor, thank you. You're always generous with your time. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again at some point in the future. Thank you. Always happy to help. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.